this is dear body where we talk about everything happening in our society connected with women's bodies if that is something that interests you then stick around i post on a weekly basis here today we are going to talk about the unfortunate series of events that recently occurred in iran coupled with what veiling really stands for for muslim women versus what has been portrayed by western media let's dive right into it In the city of Kirman, Iranian women took to the streets on the night of September 20th to express their outrage over the unjust manner in which the 22-year-old Masa Amini was killed after being taken to the detention center by the Iranian morality police. One of the women can be seen in a video circulating online where she cuts her ponytail with no hijab in sight in the presence of protesters and raises a fist in the air. This gesture is in response to how the Iranian morality police have imposed a strict regime towards treating women who are not conforming to the enforcement of the hijab and robes as compulsory. Now why are Iranian women protesting? After video footage was released by the Iranian police showing Amini collapsing, the 22-year-old's father expressed they had no family history of heart-related issues. When the father, Amjad Amini, inquired about video access after she was aggressively placed inside a police car, the police refused to comment. Since the hijab law was enforced in Iran in 1981, the morality police have adopted various techniques against women who do not practice it, including dragging them in police vans for detention, imposing heavy fines, and regulating verbal notices. However, Amini faced brutal treatment at the hands of the officers as her brother claimed he had heard violent screams while waiting for her sister outside the detention center. After Amini was taken to the hospital, she survived on machines until she passed away just hours after her arrest. So currently, Iranian women are contesting their rights now. They no longer wish to live under the state's version of veiling. because it is infused with political agenda women are afraid to live their lives in their country after what happened with amini jasmine ramzi deputy director of the center for human rights in iran took to twitter to report the result of the protests in iran in response to amini's death one of the protesters jawad hedri got killed her sister responded to the grieving atmosphere in iran over hijab laws by cutting her hair and throwing it on his grave as witnessed in a video posted online in another instance an elderly woman can be seen waving her hijab in one hand at one of the protests in iran declaring death to khamenei a woman can be seen in another video saying do you think the street is yours you are fighting me on my soil moments later she is dragged to the ground when security forces grip her by her clothes and throw her to the ground She faced a tremendous blow to her head after being attacked with a baton. Feroze Mehmoodi, executive director of United for Iran, was interviewed regarding the ongoing protests to which she communicated that the number of arrests were between 30 to 40 by September 26th. It has been reported that more than 1200 protesters have been arrested for uniting against the repression of female mobility in Iran. She added that the number of people who have taken off their veil 
is more than what is being portrayed online. Mahmoodi shared a similar experience with the morality police at the age of 16 on a trip to visit her family in Kerman, Iran. She was taken to the police station after her bangs were showing from her headscarf. After being kept in custody for almost five hours, she was made to sign a form stating that she would receive 50 lashes if she committed the offence again. Today, she leads a non-profit called United for Iran, designed to include campaigns, apps and educational platforms for Iranians to equip themselves with knowledge concerning human rights, morality police checkpoints and more. What are Iranian women fighting for? We need to look back at how the state ensured the extent to which Iranian women could invoke their rights. Starting off with the Pehlavi era, when the Pehlavi dynasty ruled from 1925 to 1979, women attained free education, went to universities, voted and ran for parliament. The family protection law gave them the right to divorce and further the custody of children. Permission of marriage was raised to 18 and man had to sought permission of the court to get married. The Shah of Iran, Muhammad Raza Pehlavi, rooted for a modernist city, but his opposition, comprising of Shiite Muslims, wanted a state living by Islamic rules and regulations. Their leader was Khomeini. A lot of unrest spread due to these parties' opposing views of ruling the state. Shah left Iran, and Khomeini went into exile in France, but returned and claimed leadership. His policies restricted the role of women in the domestic, political and social affairs of the state. New restrictions were announced under the Islamic Law of Retribution in 1981, which included flogging, stoning and payment of blood money for crimes ranging from adultery to violation of Islamic dress codes. Covering your head was announced as mandatory. It was enforced under the Law of Retribution. Even if some of your hair, like bangs, showed through your hijab, you had to pay a fine or receive 70 lashes. Women were limited to work in appropriate fields like teaching or nursing, and as a result, the female workforce decreased from 13 to 8.6%. So women voted for Akbar Hashmi into presidency for two terms, both in 1989 and in 1993. He was more socially aware and registered women's rights. So women participated in sports and sought education up until university level. Then came Muhammad Khatmi from 1997 to 2005. During this time, women received compensation upon a divorce without cause. Government scholarships were provided to study abroad. Non-government organizations were given a push to commit to women-centered issues. When Mahmoud Ahmadinejad came into the picture in 2005, he became an obstacle in the process made in Iran over the course of 16 years when it came to women. An Islamic dress code was strictly put into action with necessary violations meeting consequences. In 2009, when Ahmadinejad was re-elected, he lost support from Iranian women because they became the target of the police amidst protests. There is an ongoing debate about Iran violating human rights due to their conflicting stance against the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. The conflict arises with one party tying the UDHR to Western humanist thought 
and the other aiming for compatible Islamic theocracy. One of the first female judges in Iran, Shireen Abadi, spoke openly against the bill on women's rights, which discriminates by intermingling religion with human rights. According to Abadi's statement, Islam has been misinterpreted for political gain. In reality, Islam respects and promotes individual rights. Before her Nobel Prize winning speech in October 2003, Ibadi shared in her interview with AFP her decision not to wear a headscarf because Iranian women should have the right to decide for themselves. The government of Iran responded to Ibadi's acknowledgement of promoting women and human rights in Iran by suspending her bank accounts and pension payments and also blocked access to her safety box containing her Nobel Prize. Upon her arrival in Iran, members of the parliament welcomed her, except for Khatmi, who only recognized scientific and literary prizes regarding the Nobel Prize Prize, not humanitarian efforts. Shireen Nishad, an Iranian visual artist, uses photography and video installations as a medium for narrating the experiences of women. One of her works, titled Secret of the Whale, examines how an artist translates living with two cultures as Nishad moved to California 17 years after her birth in Iran in 1957. Using art, Nishad reclaimed the Iranian woman's experience and her relationship with veiling perceived in the West. A Muslim woman's choice to veil does not equate to being submissive or voiceless. She can be fearless sexually liberated and educated even when she chooses to cover herself. This is because her headscarf or her choice of clothing is disconnected from her religious beliefs. Contrary to the Western view that veiling is a means of oppression in Islam, Iranian women who willingly cover themselves use it to mobilize freely outside their homes so they can rid themselves of being sexualized. Compulsory veiling, according to many, disturbs the gender dynamics, making them unequal. If women are simply instructed to cover their bodies and their heads, it gives off the view that their bodies are to be protected from the male gaze. Then the choice of veiling becomes more about Muslim women protecting themselves from being sexual objects and not practicing their individual will to veil. I want to talk about how the West interpreted the veil. The American media used women and their choice to veil or not to veil themselves to fulfill their agenda under war on terror. Notice how Afghan women have been at the center every time in reference to the war on terror. I want to start off with Sharbat Gula. In 1984, McCurry was based in Pakistan, employed as a photojournalist for National Geographic during the early years of the Soviet war in neighboring Afghanistan. On one shoot, McCurry stepped into an all-girls Islamic religious school. There, he took the photo of an 8-year-old student named Sharbat Gula. In 2019, The Wire ran a story titled, You'll Never See the Iconic Photo of the Afghan Girl the Same Way Again. Tony Northrup was 11 years old in 1985 when an issue of National Geographic arrived on his doorstep with an unforgettable cover photo of a girl with green eyes. Decades later, Northrop is himself a photographer and a popular video blogger. Two years ago, he decided to make a video about Steve McCurry's iconic image of Shabbat Gula and how its colors and composition 
inspired millions of people in addition to Northrop himself to talk about the plight of refugees. When he began his research, however, he realized that nothing about the photo was as it seemed and he would never be able to look at it the same way again. On February 27th, Northrop published a video on his YouTube channel saying, this isn't the story I wanted to tell, detailing the bleak reality of what McCurry had done to obtain that photograph in 1984. Interviewed in 2002, Sherbat Kula was asked for the first time how she felt when the photograph was taken and for the first time she was allowed to say angry. When Sherbat Kula finally saw the cover that would make her face world famous, she felt, she said later, nervous and very sad. Until their return for the follow-up story in 2002, Sherbat Kula received nothing. She was arrested in 2016 in Pakistan on charges of fraudulent identity. She served 15 days in prison and was then deported to Afghanistan, away from a very good life in Pakistan. She blames the photo for her arrest, saying, The photo created more problems than benefits. It made me famous, but also led to my imprisonment. Besides, her life continues to be in danger. Being on the cover of a magazine still puts her at the risk of being identified by conservative Afghans who don't believe women should appear in the media. Northrup republished his video with some corrections on March 8th, including how she was not wearing a burqa but a chadar. Sherbet's story reminded me of this one article I came across while researching on Lahoud months ago. Lahoud is a Palestinian-American anthropologist. There is this article by her which explores the ethics of the current war on terrorism, asking whether the discipline devoted to understanding and dealing with cultural difference can provide us with critical purchase on the justifications made for American intervention in Afghanistan in terms of liberating or saving Afghan women. What are the ethics of the current war on terrorism, a war that justified itself by wanting to liberate or save Afghan women? The most pressing aspect for Lahoud was why the Muslim woman in general and the Afghan woman in particular was so crucial to this cultural mode of explanation. Why were these female symbols being mobilized in this, and I quote, war against terrorism in a way they were not in other conflicts? Laura Bush's radio address on November 17th reveals the political work such mobilization accomplishes. So on one hand, her address collapsed important distinctions that should have been maintained in the first place. There was this blurring of the very separate causes in Afghanistan of women's continuing malnutrition, poverty and ill health and at the same time their more recent expulsion under the Taliban from employment, schooling and the joys of wearing nail polish. Most revealingly, the speech enlisted women to justify American bombing and intervention in Afghanistan and to make a case for the, and I quote, war on terrorism, of which it was allegedly a part of. As Laura Bush said in a radio address from the White House, and I quote, Because of our recent military gains in much of Afghanistan, women are no longer imprisoned in their homes. They can listen to music and teach their daughters without fear of punishment. The fight against terrorism 
is also a fight for the rights and dignity of women. End quote. It is clear that the West used Afghan women to justify war, their invasion. So many developing countries were facing similar issues, whether it is education, poverty, ill health, employment, and so much more. But the West operates only where it benefits them, even if it's at the cost of women and their connection with veiling, particularly Muslim women. It is common popular knowledge that the ultimate sign of oppression of Afghan women under the Taliban and the terrorists is that they were forced to wear the burqa. Liberals sometimes confess their surprise that even though Afghanistan has been liberated from the Taliban, women do not seem to be throwing off their burqas. First, it should be recalled that the Taliban did not invent the burqa. It was the local form of covering that Pashtun women in one region wore when they went out. The Pashtun were one of the are one of the several ethnic groups in Afghanistan and the burqa was one of the many forms of covering in the subcontinent and Southwest Asia that has developed as a convention for symbolizing women's modesty or respectability. So the burqa, like some other forms of cover, has in many settings marked the symbolic separation of men and women's spheres as part of the general association of women with family and home, not with public space where strangers mingled. Some 20 years ago, the anthropologist Hannah Papanik, who worked in Pakistan, described the burqa as a portable seclusion. She noted that many saw it as a liberating invention because it enabled women to move out of the segregated living space while still observing the basic moral requirements of separating and protecting women from unrelated men. So ever since Lahut came across uh, her phase portable seclusion, she has thought of these what she calls enveloping robes as mobile homes. Everywhere such veiling signifies belonging to a particular community and participating in a moral way of life in which families are paramount in the organization of communities and the home is associated with the sanctity of women. But the purpose of laying down all of these events is for us to historically trace how a piece of cloth led to a forceful invasion and also violation of human rights. Is it justified to restrict a woman's mobility using the tool of religion? Is it important for us to delve individually into matters concerning our bodies? Is Iran's fight our fight as well for bodily autonomy? Let me know how you feel about the ongoing situation when it comes to addressing women's basic human rights. Thank you so much for sticking around. Make sure you follow me for weekly content on what it means to speak up for our bodies. If you have any suggestions for me on what topics I should discuss, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Sarosh Ibrahim. I will catch you in another episode very soon. Till then, do not forget to be kind.